This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. So thank you very much. Uh, and I would like to say a very big um, welcome to our panelists, um, to Catherine and, and also to all of you. It's really great to see so many people. Uh, so we're here today. I just wanted to begin by making a few marks about the research and the context of the panel um, to set the scene. So we're here today really to celebrate and discuss um, Catherine O'Rourke's book, um, Women's Rights in Armed Conflict Under International Law. And it has emerged from um, a consortium of, of organisations, including University of Edinburgh and Transitional Justice Institute, where Catherine's located at University of Ulster, um, looking at um, political inclusion and peace and transition processes through the Political Settlement Research Programme. A lot of our work is focused on the design and implementation of peace and transition settlement terms. And we've had a particular focus on understanding how issues of inclusion broadly um, are dealt with there. We've looked at this in two ways. First of all, horizontal inclusion between political military elites, who often are exclusively or predominantly men, um, and vertical inclusion to how wider society and a wider social contract taking place. And um, while we've studied a number of groups that tend to be left out of peace negotiations, gender has been really central to everything we have done. And in fact, Catherine really headed up the gender stream of research, which cut across um, organisations. So this book today, in ways, is the culmination, I think, of what has been a really strong body of work within PSRP that hasn't just dealt with women's rights, but has produced, and I think I saw Fidelma Ash somewhere on the list, has produced um, some of the first work on conflict and LGBT rights, for example. Uh, so um, what have we produced in this work? Because I wanted to just mention it because Catherine's work in a sense draws and builds and provides a context and a framework for thinking about that work. We've produced first of all data through the Pax Peace Agreement website on um, how peace agreements deal with gender. That's work that I first began years before PSRP with Catherine herself. Um, we've produced through practice-based organisations like Conciliation Resources um, and again with Catherine's instrumental involvement um, detailed case study work on gender inclusion in Colombia, in DRC, uh, in Bougainville, in um, a range of other places, but also in Nepal. So the three case studies at the heart of the book also have behind them um, country-based um, studies um, of practice organisations. Uh, and we have produced, uh, I suppose, a, we have a PeaceFem app giving access to the peace agreements uh, and uh, then we have this detailed contextual work around legal standards and um, two pieces of work have been key, this book and Ashley Swain's book on sexual violence. So it's a large scale body of the work and Harriet's posting different places we can find that findings. But in that context, I think what Catherine's book does is three main things that I hope will be brought, drawn out of the discussion today. I think it operates really um, as the ultimate textbook on armed conflict and international women's rights. And by that, I don't just mean a textbook for students and academics, although I think they're gonna all have it on their shelves if they touch women's rights at all. 
Um, but also I think for people in the field, because it's written in a really accessible manner. Uh, and I think the structure and the tables and, and everything about it means that it's actually a really handy reference guide on exactly how international is structured and how it deals with women's rights. I think the second way in which it operates is to understand the role um, of international law and women's activism in conflict from how to deal with conflict itself, as in the DRC context study, on how to um, use the standards to um, be active for women's participation in peace processes, as in Colombia, and also for some of the struggles that emanate out of a successful peace agreement, as is picked up in particular in the Nepal case study. So it shows, I think, through those case studies, really how these standards operate. And I think what we find that this book resonates with across the PSRP studies, um, that of understanding international law and international actors in a very complex relationship um, with women in, in country situations and in, uh, and in conflict situations, whereby in some senses, these standards and transnational engagement are really important to opening up spaces for what's really actually a very um, in-country women-led um, way of navigating those standards into very, very contextual, context-specific situations. Um, and I think what Catherine's book really shows is the complexity of that navigation, but also the complexity of this fragmented situation of international law that we'll, we'll hear about in, in presenting the sort of tools for that. Uh, I think the third thing which it does is really to um, set out a kind of law reform agenda for these standards and also a practice-based agenda for how we use them. Um, and this comes through in the really in the last two chapters. Um, but for me, um, and what might be useful for people after the seminar is also that there's a policy brief that attaches it. And actually, that's pulled into some really specific recommendations that are written, not just in general terms, but for national governments, for the UN Security Council, for the Human Rights Based Treaty System. Uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, many of the groups represented or uh, with people from them on the panel uh, and the International Criminal Court and, of course, civil society itself. And I think that reform agenda is one that we would really hope our the research generally in PSRP and this book in particular would help to forward. So I'm very excited actually to be here and to see uh, a second amazing book from Catherine. Um, and we'd like to just offer my personal um, heartfelt congratulations to her and to just say how proud PSRP is um, of the book um, and of our association with her. Uh, and I'll just hand over now to our chair, who's our new rector at University of Edinburgh, Deborah, Deborah um, Kayambe, who um, herself has a role in membership of the International Criminal Court and um, connections to Democratic Republic of Congo, which is, of course, one of the case studies in the book. So we would just like to congratulate you on your new office, Deborah, and say how proud we are in the university to have you as our rector. And I'll hand over to you for the rest of the proceedings. You need to unmute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. And I'm so pleased to be here. And then international law and cause of women is really something is in my heart. I really, really like to hear people from different backgrounds talking about this situation. So I'm going to pass to Catherine now, who is the director of the traditional Justice Institute at Russell University. Catherine, it's to you now. 
Thank you very much, Deborah, and thank you, Christine, for the introduction. I thought it might be helpful for uh, me to commence the discussion today just with a brief overview of what the book sets out. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book and, and also to provide some context for the, the roundtable discussion. Um, so the book is motivated by a discernible trend um, since the early 1990s uh, and indeed up to the present day um, towards the increased regulation of women's rights in conflict under international law. Um, so indeed a large portion of the early chapters of the book are dedicated to identifying and, and tracking these developments. In particular, the book is interested in the fact that these legal developments happen across several different regimes of international law. So in the 1990s, we see these initial developments under international human rights law. Uh, we see the increasing prominence of gender-based crimes in the emergence and codification of international criminal law. We see operational responses in international humanitarian law. And of course, we see the emergence and adoption of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda at the UN Security Council. So within a relatively short period of time, we see four distinct regimes of international law engaging in this thematic area of women's rights in conflict. So the book dedicates much of the initial discussion to tracking these developments, to discussing key aspects of how the, each of these four regimes regulate women's rights in conflict um, through the lens of how they define conflict, how they define women's rights, what are their sources in international law, and what enforcement mechanisms and monitoring procedures do they bring to women's rights? And finally, what provision do they make for the participation of women in decision-making? The initial chapters analyze international law along these criteria, and then go on to look at how these different regimes inform one another. So the first major section of the book, the legal and conceptual framework, they address these questions in detail. The second section of the book, the middle section, then addresses these legal questions in a more practical way by looking at what the key institutions of international law, um, so the International Committee of the Red Cross, the International Criminal Court, human rights treaty bodies, and the UN Security Council, are in fact doing on the ground in conflict-affected settings to promote and protect women's rights in the case studies of the DRC, Colombia, and Nepal. And the final section of the book then seeks to draw together these findings from sections one and sections two to draw some broader conclusions about the protection of women's rights in conflict under international law, how the contemporary legal tapestry might be maximized for the enhanced protection of women's rights, and to distill key strategies, what I call in the book a feminist toolbox, to manage the fragmented protection of women's rights in conflict under international law. Um, it's because of the book's scope, um, its analysis across these four regimes of international law, um, and its ambition to speak to scholars, lawyers, and activists that I am so pleased and so grateful to include such a distinguished roundtable of contributors today who work across these different legal regimes and these different constituencies. Um, I'm grateful to you all for giving up your time to discuss these themes, uh, and I'm deeply honored to have you here today. Um, it is customary at book launches for the author to take the opportunity to publicly acknowledge and thank individuals and communities who have contributed to the book writing. Um, and despite this unconventional virtual format, uh, Darth of Wine and Cheese, um, I would nevertheless like to take um, a rare opportunity to convey my thanks to just some of the people to whom I'm indebted. Um, it takes a village to write a book. Uh, in these times in which we are required to be distanced from our fellow village members, um, it feels particularly important to acknowledge and thank them. So the book is an output, as Christina said, uh, it's an output of the Political Settlements Research Programme 
which was generously funded by the then Department for International Development and, and what is now the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Um, without the resources provided through the PSRP, it simply would not have been possible to undertake a project of this scale. Um, consequently, I would like to acknowledge and thank my funder <coughs> represented here today by Adrian Johnson. Um, I'm also deeply indebted to Christine Bell, uh, PSRP director, who generously gave space and priority and resources uh, to undertaking, developing and completing this project. I'm grateful for Christine's confidence in seeing the potential of the book at the time at which we initially devised the PSRP, and I'm grateful for her continuing support since. Christine, thank you. The book benefited enormously from being part of the Political Settlements Research Programme. The case studies at the DRC, Colombia and Nepal are embedded within larger PSRP activities and benefited from programme partnerships with those countries and civil society organisations in those countries. The PSRP gender theme meant also that I had the benefit of gender scholars and practitioners from elsewhere in the University of Edinburgh um, and conciliation resources um, and from elsewhere to inform their research. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to undertake a good uh, deal of the initial thinking about the book as a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Minnesota, generously hosted by the Human Rights Programme there. Uh, I'm grateful to, both to the Irish Fulbright Commission and to Barb Fry and her team at the Human Rights Programme for their support. And I must of course acknowledge the generous community and support that I received from my own institution, the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University, in which I'm pleased and proud to be based. The TGI director during the book writing was Rory O'Connell. Rory provided endless practical support to enable me to write and complete the book. Um, and my colleagues at the TJI, both, both in the gender research stream and, and my fellow international lawyers there, uh, provided an outstanding, critical, theorized, intellectually generous environment in which to forge and refine my ideas. And likewise, my students at the TJI, in particular on the LLM, Gender and Conflict and Human Rights, um, provided an inquisitive and thoughtful first audience for many of the book's ideas and arguments. Um, and finally, on a personal note, uh, much of the book writing happened while my twins were still infants, um, an approach I'm not sure I would recommend. Uh, nevertheless, this does take, uh, make the depth of my gratitude to my partner, Elizabeth, even greater. So thank you. <laughs> um, with that, I'll hand over to, to Deborah to share the roundtable. Um, and just to note my thanks again to Christine Bell, to Alison Dobby and Harriet Cornell for organising today's event, and to, to Deborah, Madeline, Bandana, Adrian, Emily and Vanessa for your time and contributions today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. So now I'm passing to Madeline Rees, who is the Briti a British lawyer and Secretary General of the Women International League for Peace and Freedom. Madeline, to you. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me on this, this round table. And first of all, big congratulations to Catherine. Well done. But you have no idea how angry you made me. I don't think you intended to, but um, I could feel my blood pressure rising with every chapter. And the reason for that, I think, is this, it exposes very clearly what happens when you have law drafted in patriarchy and how the exclusion of women from participation in creating law, which actually recognizes our experiences, means that getting justice is really very hard and long process in coming. And I think your analysis of, of the different um, disciplines of law and where and how they have come into play in trying to protect women's rights in armed conflict is a dramatic attempt, I think, of bringing coherence to it all, um, but at the same time exposing exactly the problems that we've got. Even the title of the book, Rights in Armed Conflict. 
I mean, in the reality, as we all know, you know, we don't have them. Women do not have rights in armed conflict in reality, even though they, we may have them in theory. And that's why I think it's really interesting when you go into the development of the case studies, it's showing really it's the before and the after, not the during where the, the law can actually make a difference. And one of, your, one of the, the critical parts of my anger always comes when we start discussing international humanitarian law, which is absolutely, I think, the epitome of male drafted excuses for being able to, to participate in violence. Um, it basically just regulates what they can smash, when they can smash it, and who they can't smash, and at what period of time they can't smash them, allowing certain smashing to go on when it feels that you know, proportionate responses to or proportionate military gains can be made. Who thinks that can be a proper way forward? Um, the other thing I think it does is it, it doesn't question ever the right to, apart from armed aggression, it doesn't really critique conflict it doesn't say there should be a law against war it doesn't actually say it asks the wrong question so it accepts law war as being a normality and it doesn't and then seeks to regulate it in a way which for me and i think for the, those who suffer through conflict um it is not it is not a regulatory it is not possible to regulate armed conflict as we have seen over and over again and I think your book does that. And I also think it, it shows the limitations and the, the legal gymnastics that have to be performed when we try to get justice out of that system. So when it's transposed into an attitude, uh, as it was for the tribunals for former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, when it's transposed to try and then bring women's experience, and you bring this up again and again in your book, and I love that part, it's the lived experience of women which need to be surfaced. Um, you have to perform these legal gymnastics in order to bring that experience into the way in which law has worked. And it's, it's happened, it's happening, it's slow, it's painful. Um, and I think that where, where we are now is at a point where we have the ICC as being what we hope will be the way forward. But just to say in terms, because at least, at least we have now this idea of gender as persecution, which is something I hope we'll get to discuss later on as being an important entry point. But it's always, we're always looking for entry points, aren't we? We're always, we have this system, we're looking for ways in that we can actually make it better so that women can access justice. Just to say, um, in relation to, we did two conferences. One was at OHCHR, the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, at the demand of people from the Balkans and from um, in, in the Kenyan context from Africa, uh, where there had been extreme militarization, and we called the conference Seeking Justice Getting Law, because it was law was not providing the sorts of redress that was necessary for the sorts of harms that had been suffered in either of those fora. Um, and then we did a, a and the, the point of that was to see in which way and which uh, discipline can best get you to that recognition. Sidebar, from that conference, the work we've now been doing as the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is supporting women in conflict countries to take part in as many different fora as possible in order to seek justice. One of them, and Dana, you're the arbiter on this one, is the CEDAW committee, Syria. International humanitarian law, the laws of war have failed completely when it comes to the regulation of that, that conflict and women have suffered disproportionately. Um, but seeking justice, the women came to the CEDAW committee and their case was presented. And 
they felt as if they had received justice from the CEDAW committee. They felt that if they had, they had been heard, that the points were put to the government by the members of the committee in such a way that it really represented what was being said. And the committee made concluding observations which were absolutely exactly what the women wanted to hear. So even though we know that the comments of the CEDAW committee are not gonna be taken on board by this particular regime, they are there. They have documented what has happened and that is part of seeking justice. Um, I think that there's many more things we can say about how we get to, to coherence. It's not just about the coherence of the disciplines, but it's about the coherence of the systems within which those disciplines are actually adjudicated. So how do we move from Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security into how they are affected by the UN on the ground through the mandate, how that then is transposed into domestic legislation which provides the, adequ the adequate protection and then uh, redress for harms caused. And then how can the other parts of the system in terms of the treaty bodies and the universal periodic reviews, how can they then adjudicate that so we actually have this circle of law which is not exactly the principle of convergence, but it is the informing of one discipline into another. So there's coherence for the people who are on the receiving or who are seeking the justice from beginning to end. And I think that's something we can really, really discuss. And one more point back to the, the issue of, of persecution. The reason why I'm, I'm so interested in that now is that I think that the various strands that you tease out, the different types of harms that are covered through the different disciplines, we have to bring them together. And the way in which we can flatten, if you like, this these rigidity between these regimes is through looking at the sorts of violence that are, uh, that are um, experienced by women, but not just women, by LGBTI community in particular, how gendered that is and how that can be accurately described through the lens of persecution. So I think, you know, your book is a great guiding you know, it, I think is exactly what, what Christine said. You know, it is a wonderful tool and guide for all of us who want to make sure that we can make best use of what we have, even though it sits within the structural discrimination that is patriarchy and how we try to break that, which we will eventually. So well done, Catherine. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Madeline. Now, next on the line, it be Bandana Rana. She's a member of the CDO committee from Nepal and she's the chair of the Global Network of Women Peace Builder. Go on, Banana, it's to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, hello, everyone. And I'm so pleased and honored to be a part of this round table uh, coming from, and first of all, of course, I would like to congratulate and thank Catherine for this wonderful work. You know, coming from a country emerging from conflict, Nepal, which is also a case study in your book, as uh, well as having worked directly with uh, conflict-affected women and girls and advocated um, at the national level for inclusive peace building. And now in the CEDAW committee, leading the group on women, peace and security with the general recommendation 30. Uh, this book is extremely useful, interesting and resourceful personally for me as well. So again, congratulations. Uh, I would just like to share some of my thoughts on the book as I skim through it. Uh, the author has explored very well in the book, the diversity of the normative systems and the gaps and problems that emerge in terms of implementation and accountability in women's rights in armed conflict. 
The numerous studies that have undertaken been undertaken in the WPS agenda so far have largely been limited to raising awareness on the impact of armed conflict on women and how states and organizations have responded to their plight. Recommendations to respond to the needs of women have also been ensured, but how accountability can be ensured was underexplored. So one of the great strengths of the book is that for the first time, women, peace and security agenda is brought under the umbrella of the normative standards and institutionalized practices under all applicable international laws. It creates a very compelling base for developing the future efforts in a coherent manner. Incorporating three country cases from the DRC, Nepal and Colombia provide very fresh and realistic basis for the analysis. This methodology con contributes to the insights of how to apply the analytical perspectives across the different legal regimes, and very importantly, the pathways to address the gaps arising therefrom. The practical examples increase comprehension of the problem by placing it in a realistic context. Furthermore, the book is able to guide improvement in humanitarian activities and services for women affected by armed conflict, recommendations specific to each bodies, governments, UN Security Council, human rights treaty bodies, including CEDAW, ICRC, ICC, and civil society organizations are extremely valuable at this stage for acceleration of all efforts. The book adds to benefiting country policies. Practitioners can compare and contrast the scenario with situations they are currently facing and employ it as a basis for developing appropriate responses while recognizing that the approach illustrated in the example will not be appropriate in all places or at all times. The book provides a very useful guide for theorists, practitioners, lawyers, and activists working to protect women's rights in conflict. Also, the book contributes to greater understanding of gender justice, accountability, and the realization of women's rights. May I also share how CEDAW has been responding to strengthening accountability to women, peace, security agenda. And thank you, Madeleine, for bringing the case of Syria. You know, it, it, it is so gratifying to hear that at least the women from Syria felt that they had a platform to be heard. And as you said, the regime may not listen to it or adhere to the recommendations, but it is documented. And, you know, the women sounded it out. So that those kind of reactions make us, I feel very gratified for the kind of work that we do. And in terms of the CEDAW, in its country reviews as obligations to state parties, for example, to Cote d'Ivoire, even DRC, Ireland also, Jordan, uh, Liberia, Nepal, even Colombia. These are some of the examples of the, the recommendations we've given, like ensure representation of women at all levels of decision-making in relation to transitional justice and post-conflict reconstruction processes and institutions and take measures to ensure the effective participation of women in the peacebuilding process and negotiations. Focus and increase support to local level women peace builders. I'm just going quickly just to give you an example of you know, how we, so I think your book is going to strengthen these kinds of recommendations as well. Implement effectively national action plans with and allocate adequate financial resources. Uh, and in line with the general recommendation number 30, uh, com effectively combat impunity by promptly and thoroughly investigating violence, violations of women's rights perpetrated in conflict areas, particularly sexual and gender-based violence. Ensure that victims and their family members have effective access to justice and remedies. Provide adequate protection from reprisal for victims and witnesses. Uh, and monitor and document cases of sexual violence and gender-based violence in conflict areas and produce statistics and data. So these are some of the examples of 
how we have been trying to build the accountability of state organizations. And since uh, the adoption of GR30, there has been an increase of almost 50% of member states actually having a specific uh, reporting area under the title Women, Peace and Security. So there is an increase on countries and states respond, responding to and reporting on WPS. And I think that this kind of resourceful book, we can strengthen that accountability and obligation as well. I must mention that coming from Nepal, uh, it was interesting for me to read your case in Nepal. And um, Particularly, I felt you have covered remarkably well the case of Nepal in light of issues of women's rights during the armed conflict and the pending questions of impunity ever since on matters associated with, associated with enforced disappearances. In particular, I found the um, uh, few paragraphs, uh, I think it is in page 265, particularly of significance about how uh, you connect the scope of the problem with broader structural and socioeconomic dimensions connecting with realistic intersectional issues of women's rights, where you outlined that while disappearances were perpetrated primarily against men, it had significant adverse impact on female relatives, you know, because 99, more than 90% of the, those men who disappeared were breadwinners and the impact it had on the family. I think this is a very nice angle uh, that Nepal itself and other countries can also uh, take into account. And, uh, you know, this is a different perspective that I found in this. Uh, the rest, I think, uh, I strongly feel the book provides a very useful guide for theorists, practitioners, lawyers, activists working to protect women's rights in conflict, as, a, as well as to states in conflict and emerging from conflict, and to treaty bodies like CEDAW, contributing to the greater understanding of gender justice, accountability, and the realization of women's rights. So I congratulate you once again, and I really look forward uh, to even um, uh, you know, assessing and studying the book in more in depth and to see how it can help us in our work with CEDO as well as at my national level in, and in other countries. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Congratulations once again. Thank you, Bandana. Thank you so much. Now I'm passing to Adrian Johnson, who works on matters related to peacekeeping, mediation, and the United Nations in the UK Foreign Commonwealth Development Office. Adrian, please. Thank you very much, Deborah. Um, thanks very much for the invitation to speak here today and uh, my congratulations to Catherine on an excellent book. Um, I just need to begin with a, with a, with a very quick caveat. Um, I'm not here today to represent uh, a UK view or an HMG view. I will very much give you the view of someone inside the UK system uh, who touches on these issues in various ways. So please don't take this as a, an official view, but I think it's far more interesting if I talk a bit more about my own experience. Um, and just by way of background, I'm, I'm not a gender expert, I'm not an IHL expert, but I'm someone who works on the political and institutional dynamics that are really relevant to what we're discussing here today. So please take my remarks in, in that spirit. And I really want to just make a few points touching on stuff in the book um, about some of the intergovernmental multi uh, multilateral dynamics on the issue of women's rights and armed conflict. Clearly, um, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, and a really important one. Um, and I first of all want to commend the book, actually it's, it's, it's an excellent survey uh, of the legal and institutional lay of the land. And I think it, it's particularly valuable because it's, it has a sort of uh, a realistic framework within it that actually makes it very useful for, for a practitioner like me to know where we've come from and therefore where we might go and, and why the system works the way it does. Um, so maybe just to begin very quickly with the international environment on this issue. 
um, reflecting on what I've seen on the coalface of intergovernmental negotiations on this in the Security Council, the UN General Assembly and the Human Rights Council. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm being unduly pessimistic because I think there has been a substantial degree of progress on this issue over the past few decades, even if we do acknowledge the shortcomings and the, the, the huge amount that we have to go. Um, and uh, so when I bring up the challenges, that is not me expressing a normative view of whether we should or shouldn't do stuff. It just, as I see it, as somebody tries to you know, advance this. Um, I think we have to consider the extent to which the international political environment right now is conducive to broad uh, normative progress. Um, I, I thought the book was very good because throughout it raised the issue of state consent. Um, and from where I sit, you know, in a foreign ministry, um, that's a really important point. And, and when I work on his issues through the UN, um, the UN in one sense is a trade union of states, right? So the views of states are extremely important. Of course, there's a, a valuable role for civil society and the UN does have you know, responsibilities to the people uh, in, in it, globally, but, but ultimately, you know, member states are hugely influential. So what they, what they, you know, what we can do is heavily constrained by these international politics. And here I'd highlight the deep differences between states on these issues that play out in negotiations, um, both on the status of women and standards of IHL themselves, uh, but also the views on specific country situations. And, and, and here I'd flag um, something actually, I was very pleased the book raised, particularly on, on the Security Council, which is uh, the issue of securitization and the, the view held by a number of member states that actually these sorts of thematic advances are actually a cloak for Western meddling. Um, whether or not you think that's true, uh, certainly as, as, as Western negotiators, we have to be very mindful of that perception. Um, I think there's a broader point as well that, that the UN Security Council might not be a fertile ground at the moment for advancement on, on thematic issues um, in a broad sense. And we, we see this, for example, on climate change, um, but also, for example, political disagreements on Syria uh, have spilled into challenges to humanitarian language and peacekeeping mandates. Um, so the extent to which, for example, the Security Council will be able to do meaningful stuff on women's rights and armed conflict, I think, is, is open to question. Certainly in a general sense, it may be different on specific situations. Um, I think there's also a point about, you know, um, drawing on the complementarity of different bits of the system, but also the risks of fragmenting the system further. Uh, and particularly when we seek to do things in the Security Council, um, we do so in a body that, that gives um, certain members uh, a veto power, um, my government included, but you know, states that we generally don't agree with on a whole range of thematic issues. So there's really an important point here about choosing the right forum um, to try and advance uh thematic uh goals um and just to flag and i think there's also a, a practical area of concern and, and you know maybe you'll disagree with me and maybe this is something we can talk about in the discussion but i think there's a real risk from where i sit which is on the one hand whether you're negotiating the security council or any other intergovernmental body where you have a situation where you have an opportunity to raise these issues and, 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 and negotiate language relevant to things like uh, women's rights and armed conflict. On the one hand, to avoid undermining existing standards and norms for the sake of expediency 
in a particular country context, for example. Um, and on the other hand, to avoid or manage the, the risk of, <clears throat> excuse me, extending or renegotiating standards and norms in a way that takes them too far beyond state consent. Now here I'm open to challenge because I can completely see the view, well, if, if the broad-based advancement of things like IHL is blocked because no one's going to negotiate a new Geneva Convention, then surely these, these four are the only place who can advance standards. Um, there's an element to that, but I think that there is always a, a sense of just understanding what the, what the market will bear more widely. Um, because I, do, I, I don't think it, it's, it's zero risk to push standards forward in a way that the majority of the UN membership starts to feel uncomfortable with. Um, at least consider that in, in our calculations. Um, and then finally, I think, um, <clears throat> I think there's a huge issue of, of implementation of existing standards. And I think it can always be, certainly as a, as, you know, as a government, you can always reach the tool of what we need is actually a new set of standards, a, a, a new set of bodies to do stuff. But actually we have a really, um, you know, I, th I think as the book describes, you know, quite a, quite a thick set of institutions and norms and regimes that are applicable and useful here. So I'm not sure there are quick wins and silver bullets to be found by creating new bodies. And they won't necessarily get us around the politics that has stymied implementation of existing standards. Um, so what can we do to improve the implementation of existing standards and the use of existing bodies. And I think this raises some you know, questions around accountability mechanisms, um, implementation of IHL and so on. I'm, I'm just conscious I've got to the end of my time, but I, I hope I've raised a, a, a few useful issues that maybe we can discuss um, in the Q&A, but just to reiterate a really useful book and uh, something I'll be coming back to as a reference in the future. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adrian. So our next um, around the table is Vanessa Murphy. She's been the legal advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva since 2017, where she works on issues relating to gender, sexual violence, on the protection of children in armed conflict. Experience prior the IC the, the ICRC include litigation on behalf of survivor of child sexual abuse, a childhood sexual abuse, the running of support service for survivor of domestic violence and work for organization including DCAF, Human Rights Now and the International Criminal Law Media Review. She holds an LLM in International Humanitarian Law and from the Geneva Academy and graduate diploma in law in the UK and the BA in political science from Yale University. Vanessa, to you, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you to the um, organizers and in particular to Catherine for having um, me and the ICRC to join this discussion. Um, in, the, in the five minutes that I have, um, what I would like to address is two of the tools um, of the feminist toolbox that Catherine identifies. And in identifying them, speak about where I see spaces for engagement on this from the perspective of the ICRC. Um, and I want to identify these spaces for engagement at the ICRC, I think, in the spirit of the refrain that Catherine sets out throughout the book, which is that feminist ambitions in international law have always been about two things, both substance and process. So what I want to focus on today is really identify these spaces because I see them as opportunities of, of process. 
So, yes, but I mean, before I do that, I should also say thank you very much to Catherine for this, this book. It's, it's really a surgical and I think I found it to be a very even handed analysis and not to mention ethic in the train that it covers. So really congratulations. I, I identified a lot of the tensions and trade-offs in my own work at the ICRC in the book. So it was very much a pleasure to read, thank you. Um, so now to the first of the two tools. And so for each of these tools, so these feminist um, toolbox tools that Catherine sets up, what I wanna do is first of all, say what they are. I'm sure I'll bastardize it, but try and say what they are. Um, see, say what I see is the relevance for IHL and then identify the space of the ICRC's work where I think there's, in, there's space for engagement. So the first of these tools is um, regime complementarity. And Catherine explains that this regime complementarity is really a mean to harness the respective strengths and demerits of the different legal systems that we deal with when we speak of women in armed conflict. And this really makes the case to engage with all of the regimes. And I think, of course, this is particularly relevant for practitioners of IHL, such as myself, because as the book explains, yes, of course, as, as I think we've, we've discussed and heard, there's real, I think, feminist disengagement from certain regimes of international law, and that's nowhere more apparent than in the development and operationalization of IHL for very justified reasons. So to me, in terms of where we go, that means two things. And the first is that the IHL community should ensure that it's not you know, an opaquely technical closed door, that we can speak each other's language. And secondly, that IHL lawyers are similarly cognizant and able to apply other bodies of law, and specifically including, I think, human rights law like CEDAW specifically, where they're applicable and it's legally correct to do so, and where they'll be heard by the ICRC's interlocutors. And I think there are plenty of opportunities where that exists but it's about kind of moving into that space more openly. So I think, you know, in a nutshell, I think it's about taking deliberate steps towards each other. Um, and I think an example of where this, so to identify a space where I think this can be put into practice, it's in a recent public checklist that the ICRC together with the Red Cross and Red Movement um, and Red Crescent Movement partners developed primarily for our IHL lawyers in the field who deal with government interlocutors. And this checklist is on the domestic implementation of IHL prohibiting sexual violence. But deliberately, that checklist also identifies um, IHRL uh, soft and hard norms that might be applicable in those situations, specifically CEDAW and the Maputo Protocol, where applicable. And it identifies them so that it um, I kind of expressly shows for practitioners in the field where there's overlap in those norms and where it might make sense um, in terms of in, um, really, really lifting influence and sort of um, influencing, influencing more convincingly as to how those norms can then end up in domestic law where they still need to be. And there are plenty of places where they still need to be translated into international law. So basically leveraging the overlap and expressly identifying where it may, makes sense to um, identify regime complementarity. So that's the first tool in the feminist toolbox. Um, and the second one was norm reinforcement. And so Catherine, if I understood correctly, this was, this was about capturing the productive regime interactions that advance women's rights in, con in conflict. Um, and what this in particular focuses on is or looking at the manifestation of gender equality across legal obligations that are supposedly not, uh, or that are supposedly gender blind. So what that means is 
we need to enhance and reinforce the gender sensitivity of ostensibly gender-blind legal rules. And I think from the perspective of the ICRC and, um, and IHL more broadly, I, I certainly agree that there is a lot more work to do on this front. So basically what it is, is applying the rules regarding non-discrimination and equality across the more general, supposedly gender-blind legal norms. Um, before I, I finish, I guess what I'll do is, is identify two spaces where I think that there's work um, ongoing and work to do. Um, I think that a crucial part of feminist engagement uh, when it comes to IHL will be the implications of gender sensitivity, in particular to the IHL rules governing the conduct of hostilities. That space has been um, relatively untouched, but I think there's lots of entry points. Um, and to flag two processes at the ICRC where I think general, um, generally gender sensitivity can be engaged. The first is, and I know Catherine has certainly written on this, the first is the project to update the commentaries to the Geneva Conventions. So as, as I'm sure those listening know, these, these commentaries have been around since, well, the, you know, the treaties have been around since the late 40s, the commentaries have been around since the 60s. And in those commentaries, there were many problematic um, characterizations of women. So the first um, space where there is work to do is the project to update the commentaries to the Geneva Conventions. And throughout this, we have been, and we will continue to work to incorporate gender sensitive applications of the norms beyond those that specifically mention women. And that's really the crucial point. The second and final point is a work stream that was launched uh, by a public pledge that the ICRC made in December 2019. And the ICRC pledged to convene um, expert meetings to identify ways in which the application and implementation of specific IHL obligations can have different impacts on diverse women, men, boys and girls, and consider the practical Im implications for the application of IHL. So, that is a work stream that we are working on now and, and hope to prepare in the next year or two. The report that comes out of that, I think will be an interesting um, opportunity to see how we can take advantages of these opportunities of process. So I will leave it there and thank you very much for having the ICSE and congratulations again to Catherine. Thank you, Vanessa. Well, we, we, are, we are now at the last speaker for the round table. So for anybody else who wants to ask a question, please raise your hands and then I'll, I'll write down your name and, ask, uh, and give you the floor to ask your question. But remember this, the, 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 it's, it's to be good if you don't put your video on and you use just your voice, then the internet will be stable. <laughs> Otherwise, sometimes when many people want to ask a question at the same time and we have difficulty for the internet to balance. So now next to Emily, who is a, a policy specialist on transitional justice at the UN Women in New York. To you, Emily. Thanks very much, Deborah. So as Deborah mentioned, I'm UN Women's Policy Specialist on Transitional Justice, and I'm based in our headquarters team working on peace, security, and humanitarian action. And my work really focuses on women's access to justice in conflict-affected contexts, and specifically on the documentation of women's human rights violations, including sexual and gender-based violence in conflict. Um, so Catherine, congratulations on this excellent book. I'm already one of those practitioners that Christine mentioned who keeps um, the book beside me at my desk. Um, 
So I wanted to spend a few minutes reflecting on something that struck me as I was reading the book, um, an example of um, the interdependencies that Catherine talks about um, that come through in a project that I work on at UN Women. So Catherine gives a lot of fantastic examples of the interdependencies between IHL, ICL, IHRL, and the Security Council, and how these play out on the ground in Colombia, DRC, and Nepal. Um, so I thought I'd maybe add another example to this group from UN Women headquarters. Um, so I manage a, a project at UN Women where we deploy a gender advisor or sexual and gender-based violence investigator to every UN mandated commission of inquiry and fact-finding mission. Um, through this project, we've made a lot of progress in ensuring that the UN fully documents women's rights violations and does so in line with international standards. The project has been in place since 2009 and we've now deployed dozens and dozens of expert investigators and advisors to investigations in partnership with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and Justice Rapid Response. So just a little bit of background on these UN mandated commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions, since I realize this is a very niche area of, of expertise probably. So most commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions are established by the UN's Human Rights Council. We do have a couple of examples here and there from the Security Council, including a recent um, investigation on Mali, but for the most part, these are mandated by the Human Rights Council in Geneva. And last year alone, 2020, we had six investigations in the Human Rights Council, Burundi, Libya, South Sudan, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. So you can see that the Human Rights Council actually creates and, um, and continues to extend the mandates of quite a, a large number of these investigations. So what are these investigations mandated to do? Well, as bodies created by the Human Rights Council, they all include an element of documenting grave violations of human rights. And of course, this makes sense. The Human Rights Council is the UN body responsible for strengthening the promotion and protection of human rights around the globe. But very interestingly, and this is where the interdependencies between these groups of law start to come in, the mandates don't stop at human rights. Uh, so if we look at the example of the Syria Commission of Inquiry, the Human Rights Council asks the Commission of Inquiry to establish the facts and circumstances that may amount to international human rights law violations and of the crimes perpetrated, including those that may constitute crimes against humanity. Now for those international lawyers in the group, this reference to perpetrators and crimes against humanity, that's really starting to sound a lot more like international criminal law and not international human rights law. Um, another example, the Yemen group of eminent experts mandate calls for a comprehensive examination of all alleged violations and abuses of international human rights and other appropriate and applicable fields of international law. So that gives a pretty um, broad, you know, the full range of international law for this investigation to use. And in fact, all of the six uh, Human Rights Council mandated investigations that I mentioned a few minutes ago, to a greater or lesser extent, they um, include international criminal law explicitly or implicitly in their mandates. The Burundi Commission of Inquiry, for example, explicitly um, calls for the use of international criminal law. A few mandates have also called explicitly for the application of international humanitarian law. Um, the current example is the Libya fact-finding mission mandate explicitly mentions IHL. 
So these mandates alone are interesting um, in the ways that the Human Rights Council is calling um, for these investigations to, to use other types of law uh, beyond just human rights. Um, but then we can go even further and look at how these mandates are interpreted um, by the commissions and the fact-finding missions, which then report back to the Human Rights Council. Um, and in these reports, you see the same kind of mashup of, of international law. For example, the South Sudan investigation um, is, has released a report just a month ago to the Human Rights Council for the session that's happening right now. And that investigation is mandated to determine and report on the facts and circumstances of gross violations and abuses of human rights and related crimes. So there's that reference to, to ICL, including sexual and gender-based violence. So the mandate explicitly references sexual and gender-based violence. So in its report for this Human Rights Council session, the commission found gross human rights violations, but it also explicitly mentions serious violations of international humanitarian law and possible crimes against humanity. And then the commission also invokes Security Council resolutions 1325 and 1820, two of our women, peace and security resolutions from the council to describe um, the problematic nature of the government's grant of amnesty to individuals who've allegedly committed conflict-related <laughs> violence. Um, so although the South Sudan investigation and the other Human Rights Council investigations should in theory, you would think, focus on international human rights law, you see that they really regularly capture all of the legal regimes that Catherine outlines in her book. And they often jump from one to the next to the next in the same section or even paragraph, regardless uh, for the most part of the specificities of their mandate. And it seems like the Human Rights Council actually invites this type of mixture of legal analysis um, by continuing to mandate investigations with this wording that leaves, leaves it quite open for them to mix and match the law to the circumstances. So I hadn't really thought all that deeply about the rationale behind this approach with these investigations until I was reading Catherine's book. Uh, but then I was thinking, why does the Human Rights Council, the UN body mandated, you know, with, in charge of, of uh, promoting and protecting human rights, welcome the application of international criminal law or welcome the reference to Security Council resolutions? Um, well, perhaps it's because the Human Rights Council knows that these investigation reports and the evidence they contain are more likely to be taken up by institutions with stronger enforcement capabilities than the Human Rights Council if these investigations draw on the types of law that those bodies apply, whether that's the International Criminal Court or the Security Council, um, and also the CEDAW Committee and Special Rapporteurs as well. Um, and then I think when it, when it comes specifically to women's human rights violations, this use of all of the available law is extremely strategic. It shows a careful consideration of the ways in which of which legal regime most closely responds to the violations and conveys the continuum of, of women's rights violations pre, during, and post-conflict. Um, it also shows that the, the investigators and the commissioners are thinking about the accountability forum where women, girls, LGBTIQ plus individuals are most likely to receive redress. Um, and also doing some thinking about the advocacy <laughs> purposes of these investigations and the best way to convey the gravity of the situation um, by invoking different bodies of law. So just to conclude by saying one quick word about UN Women's Deployment Program, our, you know, the deployment of gender advisors and investigators into these investigations. 
So Catherine talks in the book about the importance of what she calls feminist insiders. And she says that although understudied and inadequately theorized in relevant scholarship, there is reason to believe that this constituency of feminist insiders in international law is undergoing a growth spurt and their roles can be significant. Um, and when it, so when it comes to the UN's human rights investigations, I can say confidently that we have the best and the brightest feminist insiders working on these teams. Um, at the start, Madeline, you made a comment about how this book shows what happens when you have law made in patriarchy. But I like to think that this example and many, many others show what happens when you have that law applied by feminist insiders. Um, and yeah, UN Women's Investigators, um, working with them is absolutely one of the highlights of my job. They're the most rigorous, sensitive, creative, and dedicated group of individuals in the game. Um, and it's really an honor to, to work alongside them in their feminist legal endeavors. Um, so I know I'm out of time, beyond time, but I re really look forward to, um, to the discussion um, and discussing more about this and how the Security Council responds to these reports, the International Criminal Court. Um, I, I hope to continue the discussion. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. We have a first question. I think this question is direct to Emily and um, Catherine. The question says, in countries which we have not come to terms with human rights violation, what can you advise of women to what can you what can you advise women survivor to do where transitional justice is not being perceived? Will help you will help out project in India regarding human rights violation of women in the Punjab civil war. Can you share with us, please? But men term, but men theme where transitional justice isn't applicable, ideas are appreciated. So this is down to, to Emily and Catherine. So I think Catherine should respond first and then Emily will complete. Catherine, to you. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. And thank you everyone for um, just engaging so thoughtfully. I was uh, scribbling down notes there as you were talking. Um, regarding the question, I mean, I, I'd be interesting, in fact, to hear from Bandana really on this because it, it resonates with the situation in, in Nepal very much where there is so much resistance to uh, post-conflict accountability and where civil society has had to be so creative. Um, and indeed, um, certainly in terms, of, in terms of my research and the book findings, uh, it was really consistently the case that it was, it was the human rights treaty bodies that did provide... Um, consistent ongoing attention to outstanding accountability issues. Um, but with all, with all of the sort of weaknesses of, of the human rights treaty bodies, they were absolutely the ones who were dogged in uh, pressing for accountability for past human rights violations um, from recalcitrant states. And um, the CEDAW committee, when it came to women's rights violations, you know, again, um, prioritizing transitional justice processes and prioritizing women's participation in transitional justice processes in, in their concluding observations. So in situations such as India, where, you know, the global, the sort of geopolitical dynamics are such that, you know, you're not going to have a Security Council referral or ICC involvement. Um, it was the human rights treaty bodies were the sort of consistent, uh, consistent actor there to put press for accountability in terms of, in terms of the international institutions. Um, but it might be interesting to hear from Bandana if she's um, um, Bandana has to leave now, so uh, I think I'm going to pass it to Emily first and then Madeleine will complete. Thanks, Deborah. Yeah, I think just to build on what, what Catherine was saying, 
I think that it's important in um, a challenge, challenging political environment um, of Punjab and in many other places where you're probably not going to see Security Council action or International Criminal Court action, but really in all contexts to be thinking beyond criminal accountability. Criminal accountability is extremely important. Do not get me wrong, I'm a lawyer by training, but it's not the only way to pursue the ends of truth, justice, reparations, guarantees of non-repetition. And there are many other fora, international, national, local, where you can work towards these, these ends um, without being consumed by you know, criminal accountability and reparations in particular can be an extremely form of, an extremely important and transformational form of, of justice for women, survivors of sexual violence, those who um, have been affected by enforced disappearance, um, compensation for the crime that they've experienced, um, mental health and psychosocial support can be a form of reparations, return of land can be a form of reparations. Um, so just to give some creative ideas beyond criminal accountability, of course, also the use of the CEDAW committee, special rapporteurs, other kind of more human rights um, type accountability um, formats can also be really important. And then just one last thing about the documentation of, of these crimes that the, the person asking the question mentioned. Just to keep in mind that a survivor-centered approach is the most important being guided by what the people that you're, you know, the survivors of the crimes you're hoping to document, um, taking an approach that puts them front and center, their desires for what justice looks like, um, and also making sure that you're not doing any harm to them, to their communities and families in the process of collecting evidence. I'll stop there. Thank you. Madeline, to you. Thanks, I'll be super quick. I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that have been said by other panelists, and that is um, this idea of, I think what you said, Adrian, in your words, was that, that to push the agenda when a majority of, of the United Nations states are uncomfortable with it. That speaks volumes, because basically we're now trying to get law into a space where the majority of states do not want our agenda fulfilled. And I think that comes back to what you were talking about, Emily, in relation to what the, the Human Rights Council is pushing for and has been. Never underestimate the importance of civil society. Um, those mandates would not have happened without incredible work done in front of scenes, behind scenes, lobbying, advocacy, based on law. With that, we've managed to get um, the, the, a, a resolution to demand that they track the reference to women, peace and security agenda in the country specific work that they do. It's in the, sorry, in the resolutions that they pass. We've managed to get the use of, of uh, sale of weapons into the language in the Human Rights Council. So we're pushing that convergence that we're all talking about into spaces where there is greater access because, greater access for civil society because the Human Rights Council is taken less seriously than the other bodies that sit in New York. Let's be brutally honest about it. And if we could do the same with Security Council, we might get somewhere. The Security Council, we know, is fundamentally flawed and epitomizes what Adrian said. And that is, our, that is our problem. And it's structural. Until we are able to change the structures which create the patriarchy, the patriarchal ex, um, expression, through the, the expression of patriarchy, so the way in which they're identifying legal regime, then we're going to be in difficulties. And I can't flag enough, what is happening in Myanmar right now is absolutely case in point of how law is utterly failing 
not because the law is failing, but the system we have created in order to implement the law is failing. So we have the law, we could make this work. It's not being done because there are political, there's a political agenda in the P5, which is preventing real action being taken. And I think it's for us, as those of us in civil society can push as much as we like, but we need the support of the institutions to actually make this happen. There's a challenge. Okay, just um, Emily and Adrian, are you both talking about the, the, the same question? Are you completing them? Is that right? Okay, so Emily first, then Adrian. Let go, please. Sure. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that point by Madeline about this perception or perhaps reality that the Human Rights Council is less powerful and influential than the bodies sitting in New York. But there is over time this exchange that happens between the outcomes of things in the Human Rights Council and the work of the Security Council. And it's slow and gradual, but it does happen. And just to build, a, go back to that example of these Human Rights Council investigations, sometimes the information in these investigations, and I'd like to think maybe more than sometimes, it, they make their way into the decision-making of the Security Council. So a few years ago, the Human Rights Council established a fact-finding mission on Myanmar. It submitted two reports over the course of two years to the Human Rights Council. And then for the first time in a very, very long time, and maybe ever, a, a member of this fact-finding mission was invited by the Security Council to brief the council. This almost never happens that, that someone um, who's been appointed to this type of investigation in the Human Rights Council then comes and briefs the Security Council, but it happened on this topic of Myanmar. Um, and then you also see the outcomes of this Human Rights Council report on two reports on Myanmar being used by the International Court of Justice in their proceedings, the Gambia versus Myanmar, and by the International Criminal Court and in the establishment of an independent investigative mechanism on Myanmar. So, Yes, these, invest these reports came from a Human Rights Council process that operated without state consent, and that's probably something Adrian will come back to, um, and by a less you know, influential member of this UN universe of intergovernmental bodies, but it does find its way into these other bodies, um, maybe not as strongly as it should, but it does. And then Madeline, I fully agree, these investigations would not happen without the support of civil society. Um, and then also I think this engagement of civil society in these investigations shows that civil society thinks that they are meaningful and, and contribute to justice. Although you may wanna to respond to that again, Madeline. I'll stop there. I think um, Adrian will have more to say on this. Over to you, Adrian. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I echo everything Emily has said. Um, I, I think Madeline, you make a really important point actually about the importance of civil society. Um, Yes, the UN is fundamentally an organization of member states, but civil society has been important from the beginning, from the very shaping of the charter. Um, I think there are a number of issue areas where civil society has been a really important motor of progress thematically. Um, and you know, when, look, if, if member states are falling short, then it is only the duty of civil society to, to push that issue forward. Now, that then raises a separate question, which is how do we defend the role of civil society in the multilateral sphere, because that, that in itself can sometimes come under attack. Um, just on the issue of the HRC, 
Yeah, there, 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 there can be a view of the HRC that doesn't issue legally binding decisions. Um, at most, it can give recommendations. But I think, you know, certainly as, as someone who represents a bit of the institutional memory of the Foreign Commonwealth of Defense uh, uh, Development, sort of apologies, Development Office, um, soft law can become quite hard in the sense that it, 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 as it agglomerates, it can have a really important political effect. So I'd be very careful about dismissing a collection and advancement of soft law on an iterative basis, you know, seizing the wins where you can and defending against pushback where you need to. Um, you know, because there is, you know, there is stuff agreed in the 1960s that has come back to be salient now on, on, on some other issue areas. So, you know, as, as diplomats, that means we have to be very careful about what is agreed where and when. Um, but just to say that, you know, look, the HRC is important because it can be an avenue for that collection of soft law and advancement of thematic standards and norms. Um, quite apart from the actual operational activity, we can have mandated through it, which I think, look, ultimately, I'm, I'm a philosophical realist, so I think ultimately what you can do in a particular country situation will depend on the politics of that situation. But that doesn't mean the HRC isn't a really useful tool for using the institutional levers at its disposal to, to shine a political spotlight, to collect data, to at least impose some political cost for gross um, violations and abuses of human rights. Madeleine, as the last intervention from you for that same question, is that yeah, okay? Sure. Yeah, yeah, just super quick, just to say I was not in any shape or form undermining the relevance of the Human Rights Council. On the contrary, this is where we have put so much effort in the past because it's the only one we've been able to get real influence in. And I do think that the most, one of the most important things we can do is to keep on building these soft laws so that they actually intertwine, so everything is backing everything up. That's what we can be doing as we move more towards this, this convergence um, of, of the principles under international law. Um, and I do think just to say it's we are even the language we're using is getting scary because now we are seeing the UN as state based when it should have been we the people of these United Nations. And over this last year, we've seen the exclusion and erosion of civil society access to the UN, which I think is fundamentally part of why we're seeing so much appalling behavior in some of the bodies and the complete paralysis when it comes to actually dealing with threats to real peace and security, whether it be the pandemic or Myanmar or wherever, pandemic of violence against women and femicide, for example. Thank you very much, Madeleine. I have the next question by Michaela Chen. Michaela, are you still there? Hi there, I'm here. Um, hi, my name is Michaela. I'm currently undertaking an LLM. Um, it's been a chorus of powerful voices today and it's equally inspirational and very, very troubling. So thank you all for that. My question is because there's been references to LGBTI individuals, I was wondering about your opinions and theory and practice about disaggregating this term, this umbrella term of gender, where it could both bring greater representation to this unique lived experience of gender um, and, and sexualized uh, minority groups, or does that inspire divisiveness that undermines a lot of the progress that's that's being sought in legal challenges? So who's answering first? Katrine? Yeah, thank you, Michaela. That's a very uh, thoughtful question. So, um, the, I mean, the book is carefully titled Women's Rights in Armed Conflict Under International Law. And in, and in that sense, I was keen to avoid the sin of saying gender when meaning women. Uh, and nevertheless, there's there's much within the book that I think that offers insights in terms of um, gender more broadly. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot 
lately really in terms of taking on this work is sort of where are the places in the international system where we might successfully pursue a more nuanced and inclusive understanding of gender. And I say that um, with some, frankly some disappointment at CEDAW uh, and the human rights system in terms of the promise it's offered when it comes to that sort of more nuanced or inclusive notion of gender. Um, the uh, the international human rights law is typically the place that we look for the more progressive definitions of these phenomena. Um, it's not yet where we found it. Um, there's um, increasing energy uh, to push this agenda at the Security Council, which to me just seems really quite misguided. Um, if the Security Council aren't going to work on women's rights, they're certainly not going to work on the rights of sexual and gender minorities. So instead where we've seen progress is in these sort of subaltern spaces in the international system. So um, that have escaped the notice, I think, of states, or at least the, the uh, um their uh, obstruction just yet so the special representative of the secretary general on sexual violence and armed conflict uh, Pramila Patton has started to report more frequently now in her reporting um, on sexual violence against sexual and gender minorities um now that's a mechanism that's established by the security council but um operates with a good degree of independence and for that reason can do it um, so it's in those sorts of spaces that we may see more promise, but um, I did not arrive at great conclusions about this issue. Um, there may be promise, um, as uh, Madeline talked about in terms of the uh, gender persecution at the, at the ICC, um, but frankly there isn't much in the gender jurisprudence to date from the ICC to give us great confidence in that either. Um, nevertheless, that's a place where absolutely a civil society, I think we should be thinking and, and advocating more strategically. Okay. Anybody from the table want to add on, on what Catherine just said here? Anybody from the table? So next question will be from Tilina Madiwala. In Sri Lanka, the transitional justice mechanism have ceased with no reference to these in decision-making at any level. As in Nepal, it is the woman who has been impacted disproportionately due to disappearance displacement and sexual violence. So I would like to know how domestic law can be applied and also the CEDAW shadow reporting can be utilized to push for state accountability. The last time Sri Lanka had state review by CEDAW was in 2017. So that the question on the floor was gonna to respond to that question. I can't speak to Sri Lanka, but if I just want to maybe put this on the table for any civil society folks out there. Um, CEDAW has a wonderful ongoing periodic re reporting mechanism and offers uh, great opportunities in that regard. Where we haven't seen CEDAW been used very effectively to date on these sorts of issues is through the optional protocol, um, through individual communications and, and through the inquiry procedure. Um, those have not really been used uh, for conflict related violations. And I want to just encourage, if there's civil society out there who are, who are active in state parties to the optional protocol, um, it seems to me that you know, CEDAW has already shown itself to be very engaged on conflict issues. Um, the, the optional protocol, I think, offers unexploited opportunities. Um, there's a very strong case to be made that the normal procedural kind of obligations around those mechanisms should be much, much laxer when it comes to a conflict-affected setting. So, um, I, I would just sort of want to make the case there um, to, to, to really try to, I think, push CEDAW on this issue. I think they can be an ally uh, for 
civil society in conflict affected settings um if if you're a state party of course does that help with the problem so i'll just i'll just say that somebody else may speak to sri lanka and watch it if i can maybe just underline catherine's point by saying that madeline's organization um together with a collection of groups including ones based in universities did a really fantastic um submission on syria in around 2014 which i think really paved the way to raising issues of sexual violence in the conflict there using the CEDAW standard reporting mechanism. Uh, and it's just a really good example for people to look at that want to take you up. Anybody from the table want to add about this question? Anybody? Just if I may, and that's just to think in terms of, of how to process it. If it goes into the CEDAW committee, it should be then factored into reports under the Universal Periodic Review Mechanism of the Human Rights Council, same as anything that goes into any of the treaty bodies. So you've got ways, you've got different entry points that you can use to try and constantly raise and reaffirm um, the rights that are being violated and the, the redress that should happen. Any other questions? Somebody asked Catherine to, I think, which I don't think you've done define and explain more the concept of feminist insider. And I think that I think that would be useful because we all think we know what we mean about it by it, but I'm wondering what, what you think it means. Sure, thanks. Uh, thanks. And that's a question from Anna Valena Corral in, in Colombia. So hi Anna, it's nice to nice to see you. Um, so this is something I came up with um, for some earlier work that I then continue in the book. I I have called feminist insiders uh, people within the institutions of international law who identify as feminists and are there uh, to advance feminist agendas. And there's several examples. I mean, I talk about the CEDAW committee as the sort of um, example par excellence as, as feminist insiders. There's also, um, you know, key actors and judges within the ICC. Um, UN women in the sense is around institutionalizing feminism within within the UN. So uh, those are who I define to be feminist insiders. Um, I, I talk about it in the book uh, because of their importance in generating some progressive gender norms in, in international law. So um, there's the sort of the Odio Benito dissent in the in Lubanga. Uh, there's um, there's um, to think of other examples but there's yeah again CEDAW general recommendation 30 uh, as an important progressive norm in this area developed by feminist insiders um so i um and, and another work in, in work i published elsewhere I've, I've interviewed these feminist insiders to see what they think they do so could i just jump in and give another example and that's this should be really on on uh, emily's turf the um syria commission of inquiry the report they did on They Stole My Dignity, that was really done by feminist insiders because they managed to knock out this, this almost pornographic element of examining sexual violence and just showed how it works in real life against men, women, boys and girls, where, how, at what stage in the conflict. And it was really, I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant expose of the reality of sexual violence. And uh, that was feminist insiders. And God, did they struggle to make that work, but they did it. Anybody yeah, else? and if I can just respond to that from Madeline, and this kind of goes back to the question about, uh, we've been discussing a little bit this concept of gender persecution and also LGBTIQ plus rights and the interaction of those two. And in this report by the Syria Commission of Inquiry, that is a thematic report focused on 
sexual and gender-based violence over the course of the conflict. It was published in 2018, so it's now old. But in that report, it actually describes the violations experienced by LGBTI people in um, the uh, part of the country controlled by ISIL um, as amounting to gender persecution. Um, and that's, I think, the first time I've seen that term used in uh, an investigation report. Um, you can also see it, uh, it was also uh, used in uh, a report on Yemen from the Yemen group of experts um, in relation to women specifically, um, and also in a report on North Korea. So you're seeing this kind of pr more progressive um, use of international criminal law um, by these Human Rights Council investigations, and hopefully then to be picked up by other, um, you know, accountability mechanisms using international criminal law. And now we have at the ICC the first case using, you know, applying gender persecution um, moving forward. So some exciting advancements there, and I think it does hold some promise for um, LGBT. Q plus rights. Um, it may not be the answer because as you said, Catherine, there are few bodies that are, are uh, so progressive or so inclusive or, or really willing to take that, that look. But, um, but I think we're seeing from the Human Rights Council investigations that it's possible. Thanks. I thank you all for being here. So I'm bringing back to Christ Christine. So I don't have any more questions. So it's down to you to, to close this. Fantastic meeting. <laughs> uh, so I would, um, somebody has actually, I think, just asked how do female ex-combatants fit into complicated inter women's international rights? And I think um, actually for me, out of the book, I think the DRC example was really interesting on that uh, in terms of ICC decisions that actually dealt with sort of intergroup or inter-armed group relationships. Um, but just maybe to say a few words to close. Um, first of all, uh, thank you everybody for the discussion. Really interesting. I think, um, I hope loads of our students were here because it was like a masterclass in women's international uh, right, rights under international law. Um, just again, say congratulations um, to Catherine um, for the book. Um, and also I think um, the women on our panel and and our, um, should I say, token man, but I think all of them have done a lot within their organisations, whether I don't want to label them feminist insiders, I let them label them. I've learned a hard way that um, labels are fine if you adopt them for yourself and they're usually not good if somebody else puts them on you, um, but uh, it, have all done their bit within their organisations, I think, to raise these issues and uh, to keep them live and to assist in gender and women being included in international instruments and their implementation.